Chogi's last Sunday with us before she returns to Kenya in Africa. And Emily, I'd like you to stand, and we'd like to wish God's blessing upon you. Thank you for your time here with us at First Baptist. We'll look forward to hearing from you. We'd like to support you in prayer and in other ways and keep in touch with you. Liberty or freedom is a great concept. It's a big concept in human history. American history, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Statue of Liberty, which recently reopened to visitors. These are great symbols of what we believe the United States of America stands for, what are dear to our hearts, this concept of liberty and freedom. It's also true in the history of the church, as we will see in Paul. And one other great example is Martin Luther, who nourished himself on Galatians and was part if you will, the charter of the Protestant Reformation in which Martin Luther drank deeply at Galatians and said, Christians are free. They have liberty. And in his context, that was a protest against the then corrupt Roman Catholic Church. It affects TV ads. One I've noticed several times this week in watching the Olympics is, I think it's Best Buy, and it has a puppet come in on strings. Have you seen this ad? And the puppet walks in and asks the store clerk if he can see a computer. And so they show him, of course, a wireless computer. And the store clerk says, this is wireless. And his face lights up, and he wants this. And the next scene is the puppet is holding his computer without any of the strings attached. This whole concept of freedom or the Iraqi soccer team arriving at the Olympics, a new symbol of freedom. Now, in Galatians, we find the charter of freedom for Christian faith. This is perhaps Paul's most foundational document. Most scholars think it was not Paul's first letter, but I think it was Paul's first letter, And someday that view will prevail. And this this letter was probably written about A.D. 49 or 50. You realize that's less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible for us to think of this document as so early in the life of the community of those who believed in Jesus Christ. And it's Paul's charter of liberty. Now, Paul was fighting a battle. He gets pretty hot under the collar in Galatians. He doesn't have any opening section in chapter 1 about how he prays for them every day. 
he goes immediately to a strong word and says, if anyone is preaching a different gospel, let such a person be damned or accursed. It's pretty strong. And you heard this morning when Pastor Steve read Galatians 5.12, probably the most impolite line in all of the New Testament, which he says, my opponents who are promoting circumcision, I hope they'll go too far. It's a pretty crass word. Paul was really passionate about the call to freedom in Christ. And the issue at stake in his day, in the first century, was that there were persons within the church who taught that in order to have salvation, one not only needed to believe in Jesus, but one also had to keep the law, and particularly circumcision, which had become in Judaism at that time, literally and figuratively, the hallmark of absolute obedience to the law. And Paul said, no. And Galatians is basically an argument that faith in Jesus Christ supersedes or replaces obedience to the works of the law. And that when faith has come, Believers are no longer under the law. They are now free. And that leads to the great fulcrum line of Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It's the summary of what he's argued. It's the climax of his point of view and the introduction to the remaining two chapters of Galatians. There's a way in which Galatians chapter 5 encapsulates the whole of Galatians. It's really a summary of the whole argument. It's a wonderful chapter. And those hundred of you who are reading through the New Testament, the chapter Monday through Friday, if you're on schedule, and I realize we're not always on schedule, but if you were on schedule, you read Galatians 5 on Friday. You have Galatians 6 tomorrow. But Galatians 5 which if you want to follow in your pew Bible, it's page 190. But if you'd also take out your outline from the bulletin, which says at the top, the the charter and character of liberty, this has some texts that we're going to read together. And we're going to look at three aspects of Paul's summary argument in Galatians 5. Freedom, faith, and fruit. And first, we will look at freedom the Charter of Liberty. And if you would take your little sheet, we're going to read the passages under point one together. First, let us read Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then a passage from chapter 4. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the other woman corresponds to the Jerusalem above. She is free, and she is our mother. So then, friends, we are children not of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, Paul develops an incredible allegory in chapter 4, leading up 
to the climactic verse of chapter 5-1. It's a strange allegory. He's really playing, toying with the Galatians. He says there are two women, Hagar, and he never names Sarah. He just calls her the other woman, but it's Sarah. And you will remember perhaps the story from Genesis that Abraham and Sarah have been unable to have children, and God promises that they will have children, but Abraham and Sarah have some doubt, and Abraham conceives a child with their slave woman, Hagar, Ishmael, and in a sense, that was a disobedience to God, and later Isaac is born to Sarah. Now, of course, the Jews believed they were the descendants of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. That was their heritage. But Paul says, I'm going to play with you. You want to look at the law? Okay, let me pull one on you. And so he says, there are two women. There's Hagar and her son, and Sarah and her son. And Hagar and her son are the people of bondage. And that's why he says Hagar is Mount Sinai, because that's where the law was given. But then he says Sarah is the free woman, the woman of promise, the woman obedient to God, the child born out of faith, not from the law. And so Paul says, pulling the table out from under his opponents, we, who believe in Jesus Christ, are the true children of the free woman. And thus he says, we belong to the woman of the Jerusalem above, the true Jerusalem, the free city, our mother in the faith. We are children of the free woman. It's a very clever allegory. And it becomes the basis for the call to freedom in the Christian church. I've already mentioned that Martin Luther nourished himself on Galatians. It was the primary text that brought him in his teaching and in his faith and his understanding to the concept of freedom. Freedom from the law, which he applied to his day as freedom from the demands of indulgences and other things in the church which had become corrupt. And he declared his freedom. And in many ways he paid a high price for it. But it began what we call now the Protestant Reformation. He translated the Bible into the German language of the people so that everyone could read the scripture. It becomes the hallmark of the Christian faith. And one of the great joys of the last 50 years, because for hundreds of years the Roman Catholic Church ignored Galatians, but now Galatians is embraced by Roman Catholic scholars and pastors as their scripture too. So if you go to a Roman Catholic Church today and hear a priest trained in the last 30 years or so, you will hear the same message from Galatians. Baptist history is rooted in this concept. 
Baptists were founded about 1609 or 1610. It's sort of a next chapter in the Protestant Reformation because Baptists felt that the call to freedom hadn't been fully endorsed and fully embraced. And so Baptists said we need to be totally free in the church. We need to have a church in which we have a community of believers, adult baptism, a kind of freedom. They were persecuted for their call to freedom. The Baptists struggled enormously at that time, and Baptists still do. In 1996, a wonderful, if I may say that, conference was held at our marvelous Green Lake facility in Wisconsin on Baptist freedom. I was one of the speakers at that conference, and it might help you to know that the conference drew people from the whole spectrum of Baptist life There were the very conservative Baptists there, the ones fighting to defend the conservative core of the Baptist tradition. There were the the welcoming and affirming churches, that is, those who were particularly supporting homosexual persons within the church were there. It was a tense, tense atmosphere. And I gave some lectures on the character of Baptist freedom and talked about freedom, how important it was, how valuable it was to Baptists in spite of the risks involved, and yet a concept that could be bent, that could be undercut. And we tried to walk a delicate line in the call to Baptist freedom. The papers of that conference were published in a book entitled Baptists in the Balance. Now, many of us in this room grew up as Baptists, not all of us. But many of us who grew up as Baptists grew up as fundamentalist Baptists. I'm one of those. I grew up in southern Minnesota. And in my church, we were true fundamentalists. There were no other Christians outside of our group. We debated whether in the church basketball league we could even play basketball inside the Presbyterian church. That might be contaminating the faith. There were all kinds of rules and regulations that put us in a certain kind of bondage. And many of you grew up in that kind of a church situation, Baptist or otherwise, where the rules were overbearing and threatened to replace the character of the gospel, whether they were rules about movies, dancing, alcohol, other churches, the character of church and culture, these rules often became very oppressive. And one of the issues that many of us contended for was throwing off the shackles of that kind of bondage based on Galatians. And when I finally arrived at the point in my own life where I felt free from that, my pastor wrote me a letter and said, I'm sorry to see you have decided to leave the kingdom of God. And I knew that day that I was free. It was a tender moment. And of course, Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, 
There's neither male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And you realize that that text in 19th century America became the biblical hallmark of the call to end slavery. There is neither slave nor free. And it became a very famous text in 19th century American political and church rhetoric and became the foundation for this call. At the same time, (coughs) many women in the 19th century who were involved in the anti-slavery movement and were reading this text said, hey, this text also says there's neither male and female in Christ. And they began to ponder this issue. And that's when the women's rights movement began in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, if I have the date correct. And in 1853, Antoinette Brown, the first woman ever ordained in the United States in a denomination, was ordained in New York. And the man who preached the sermon at her ordination preached a 90-minute sermon on Galatians 3.28. So it's a very historic text in the call to freedom in the church. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We are not to be people in any kind of bondage, no kind of theological, religious, or ecclesiastical bondage. We are to be free in Jesus Christ. That's the charter of faith. Now, faith is the crux of this liberty. It's what makes it work. So if you'd take your sheet again, point two, and we'll have to turn the page over as we read. Let's read these texts. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus You are all children of God through faith. Faith is intimately related to the work of Jesus Christ, particularly his crucifixion, his death, and also his resurrection. It is because of what Jesus Christ did and accomplished that we can, through faith, be identified with the death and resurrection 
of Christ. That's why we say it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Without the work of Jesus Christ, faith, saving faith, would be impossible. It is what brings us into relationship with God. Galatians 4.9, a text we haven't read today, has almost a throwaway line in it. Paul says, Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, it's one of those little, almost incidental lines in the New Testament that carries great significance. Paul says you've come to know God. Well, actually, what I ought to say is you've come to be known by God. This is that great Reformation principle that it is God who takes the initiative. It is the work of God that brings us into relationship with God. It is God who knows us first, demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Faith is commitment. Faith is not simply an intellectual understanding, as I know you've heard. But faith is a commitment of life in the same way that what Jesus did was a commitment of life. Jesus had faith, often translated faithfulness. Jesus Christ was faithful to his calling to the death on the cross. And faith for us is also commitment. It is that commitment that deep integration into being known by God and accepting the work of Christ that brings us into that relationship. We read the text that said the law was a disciplinarian. That text in Galatians 3, in different translations, is translated so many different ways because nobody quite knows how to translate the word disciplinarian the Greek word behind that. I think I've solved this problem. Nobody will ever buy my solution. No, no translator will buy my solution. But the closest English word that really fits the Greek word is nanny. Nanny. Now I realize that nanny is maybe a word passing away, and certainly for most of us, the word nanny is not an operative term. You have to be more upper class than most of us are. But in the Roman Empire, wealthy families hired what in Greek was called a paedagogos, which will translate nanny. It was usually a slave who lived with the family, a highly educated slave, and that slave was responsible to raise the children. He took care of the children. He was usually a man. He took care of the children. He helped them with their education. 
He taught them their manners. He made sure they did their homework. He made sure they learned how to respect their parents. He was an integral, key part of how those children grew up. But the minute those children reached majority, approximately age 21, the nanny was dismissed. He no longer had any role. He was no longer even considered part of the family. He was done because now they were free adults. Paul says that the law was our nanny until Christ came so that then we could be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a nanny. We have faith that changes the whole context. And that leads us to fruit. The character of liberty. Let us take our sheet again. And the first text we'll read is one of the most precious of the New Testament. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is a major Pauline theme. We heard that a few weeks ago when Pastor Steve preached on 1 Corinthians 13. Probably Paul's most famous discourse on love. And very, very important. But love is a strong theme throughout Paul. And here in Paul's first letter, Galatians, he introduces it as the character of liberty. Note the rather dramatic thing Paul does. He says, remember in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then he says in Galatians 5.14.13, But through love become slaves to one another. I thought sometimes we could summarize Galatians as the movement from one kind of slavery to another. The slavery of bondage to the law is exchanged for the slavery to love one another. That's really what Paul is saying. And what is so important is that Paul wants to make it clear that the freedom we have in Christ does have obligations. It does have responsibility. It does have limits. It does have a character to it. Freedom is not license to do as I jolly well please. 
Freedom is not individualism. That means I can live unto myself. Freedom in Christ means that one must be committed to the slavery of love. The absolute necessity of love. That's why Paul says in 5, 6, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. That's why the first fruit of the Spirit is love. That's why Paul says that we must not use our freedom for self-indulgence. We must use it for love. That has always been God's intention. There is no place for lack of respect for other people. There is no place for the lack of care for others. Cindy, in her prayer this morning, so nicely prayed that God would forgive us for the unkind words and unkind deeds we have done this past week. That's an important call because you will remember in these texts that Paul says that we must exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. We must not be conceited. We must not be backbiting. We must not be contentious. We must not be destroying the fellowship. That's not freedom. That's an abuse of freedom. It reminds me of one of my favorite little passages that Jeanette and I first read around 1960 from a book written by a Methodist minister in England, Birmingham, England. His name was David Head. And the title of the book was He Sent Leanness. And he explains in the foreword, it's not a book about weight loss. It was a That's a line from a psalm, meaning that when people were disobedient to God, he sent leanness to their souls. And this little book becomes the prayers that we pray in our worst moments. So it's a whole book of prayers that we pray in our worst moments. I know we're out of time, but I just have to tell you this story. We read this little book. It had just been published in the United States. And we lived at that time in the little town of Topsfield, Massachusetts. Typical New England town, and right in the center of town was a gorgeous little congregational white church. And that's where most of the upper crust of Topsfield went to church. And we read in the local newspaper that David Head was going to be preaching at this church as a guest preacher from England, and that on Saturday night he would be entertained by Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so who lived in Topsfield, two of the richest people in town, and all their rich friends would be invited to this special dinner to welcome David Head. Here we were, people in our 20s. We were the bottom of the social scale in Topsfield. But we were so excited, Jeanette called this family and said we would love to meet David Head we can't come to church on Sunday because I think I was preaching somewhere that Sunday 
And she said, is there any way we could get a chance to meet him? We've read his little book, He Sent Leanness. And this woman said, that's wonderful. You can come to the party at my house. None of us have ever read anything he's written. We don't know anything about him. We'd love to have a guest there who actually has read something. So we got invited to this uppity party. We had a great time. We met David Head and got to talk about his book. But my favorite prayer in the book is the prayer he calls the prayer before worship. Lord, please grant that I turn the oven down this morning. Please fill me with a sense of peace and quiet. May I enjoy the choir and all the preliminaries. May the sermon give me a glow. And please, Lord, do not let the fact that I offended several people this week interfere with this spiritual feast. Hallelujah. Praise God. And my conviction is that that's too often how we live. And the seriousness of the character of liberty is that we must be slaves to love one another. Liberty has controls. True liberty is a freedom that deeply cares, loves, nurtures, upbuilds one another in Christ. The last text under conclusion from chapter 6. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. This charter of liberty, this call to responsible liberty or freedom, Paul calls the new creation, which he refers to in Galatians 3 and here in Galatians 6. The whole thing is summed up as a new creation. It's freedom in Christ, nurtured and entered by faith, which is to produce the fruit of living a life of love. Praise God. Amen.